0: Welcome to the BLK Economics Podcast, brought to you by BLK Capital Management. BLK Capital Management is a 100% Black-owned, student-run hedge fund that focuses on exposing students to the field of active investment management. The purpose of the podcast is to enrich listeners from around the globe by highlighting the importance of economics
1: economics provides a deeper insight into the events that are currently taking place in the world and helps us understand the decisions that have been made and their potential impacts
0: i think economics is important because it's one of the most overlooked social sciences that affects every aspect of our daily lives i believe that economics is important because of the insight that you can gain into consumer behavior economics allows you to contextualize The world. BOK Economics. 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 Economics.
1: Economics.
0: Economics. As a disclaimer, all opinions discussed on this podcast are solely our opinions and do not reflect opinions of BOK Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used to make investment decisions. Hello, and welcome to the BLK Economics Podcast, a podcast where we aim to shine light on the events taking place in the macro economy. My name is Devin Miles, and today we have a special treat. Today in-house, we have Brent Schuette, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Northwestern Mutual. How's it going today, Mr. Brent? Good. How are you doing, Devin? Doing great. Delighted to have you on the podcast. We thank you for taking the time out of your day to meet with us. And just for those people who may not know who you are, haven't done any background research. Can you give the audience just a brief elevator pitch synopsis of who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. So I uh, seven years ago I moved to beautiful Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where there's now six or seven inches of snow on the ground, and took a job as the chief investment officer of the Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management Company. And so we are uh, we are a part of the bigger Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, uh, we're the wealth management company, and I'm the CIO of that. So think about if you have a retail investment account with a Northwestern Mutual advisor. Um, that would be managed by me and my team. And so over the past six, seven years, we've grown from about 80 billion in AUM to about 250 billion in AUM. So we're growing very, very fast um, as we um, help our advisors uh, put together financial plans for their clients to give them financial security by combining life insurance and investments in a way that hopefully allows them to reach their goals and objectives.
0: That's awesome. 80 to 250 AUM is quite the leap. So commend you to that. And I want to just jump straight in Here I have this article where you were interviewed by Business Insider and you were talking a little bit about the bond market. Now, before we get into that, I just want to just give a little bit of a preface of what the bond market is, because it is a pretty esoteric market. And not all of our listeners may have the greatest understanding of the intricacies of the bond market. But if you were to just explain it to a fifth grader, how would you explain the bond market?
1: Explain it to a fifth grader. All right. So, this is where I probably uh, should have practiced explaining it to my children. So, <laughs> essentially, a, a company issues debt. So, they issue uh, a debt to an investor who buys that debt. So, say they issue a $50,000 uh, bond that matures in five years from now. In that time period, it pays them, say, a three or four, or 5% uh, coupon. So, an interest payment every single year. Uh, and then, when that five years is up, the company has to pay them back that money, uh, all the while they earned 5% per year uh, in interest on that obligation.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And in the article, you mentioned that the bond market was going to be a safe place for investors to park their money in 2023. And I just want to know a little bit of why you think that is. And because we are coming off a um, year where we had equities and bonds actually return negative. That was the first time that happened since 1973. So it's quite the anomaly. But what do you think would cause the bond market to have a resurgence here in 2023? Yeah, so that's a great
1: question. I think last year was an odd year for investors because people have kind of learned that bonds typically offset stocks or they provide a hedge against downturns in the equity markets. They tend to do better Uh, uh, during periods of time or tend to actually provide some level of offset when stocks fall. And last year was an odd year because the bond market, I believe, when I say the bond market, think about all the investment grade bonds out there, U.S. Treasury market. So the government can issue debt, corporations can issue debt. Uh, The bond market that I'm referring to is the investment grade, meaning they're higher rated companies and government obligations. Uh, Last year was an odd year. Bond market was down, I believe, 13.5% to 14%, which doesn't happen very often. The reason why I think the bond market is a decent place this year uh, is because the bond market has repriced. And so if you think about 2022, coming into 2022, the entirety of the bond market yielded 1.75%. Inflation was running at 7%. Fast forward to when that article was written, that bond market yielded 5.2%, meaning that price had fallen and yield had risen. And so in that type of environment, I I believe that with 5.2% yield, there was real value or real return in the bond market. And it had returned to being an area that if you have a recession, which I do believe you are going to have a recession in 2023, uh, the bond market would provide an offset because inflation would be coming down. And so I kind of took you through a lot there, but just know this doesn't happen very often. And maybe one more way to look at it, uh, Devin, is if I take you back to 1926, there have only been five times. Uh, in which the bond market didn't provide an offset to stocks. And so on an annual basis, stocks from 1926 to last year had been down 26 times. Uh, And 21 of those 26 times, the bond market had provided the offset. The five that it didn't, 1931, 1946, 1969, 1973, the year I was born, uh, and last year, 2022. Let's set aside 1931. That was something we called the Great Recession great depression I should say. I don't think we're going to have a great uh, depression I, I just don't think that's going to occur. most recessions are mild. Um, the thing that ties the other four of those together is that inflation was above 5%. Inflation's kind of the uh, the uh, uh, kryptonite to the bond market, especially when it's priced so low. So those five times saw inflation rise over 5%. This year I believe inflation is going to be falling below 5%. Uh, and i guess i one thing to add we we do have our investors uh, own commodities um i should also note in those other four times commodities were up over you know 15 20% per year uh and so uh, you know kind of coming into this year with the bond market having repriced with inflation set to move lower um we thought that bonds would be a good place especially if you get a mild recession which is what our outlook is for uh in 2023
0: got it so when stocks perform or underperform, we should expect that the bond market will pick up the slack. And I would just ask, will that be one of the reasons why we should actually expect to see the bond market overperform? Because I would think if investors now have an opportunity to capture a maybe 4%, 3 5% yield, this would incentivize them to invest in the bond market, have that those fixed coupon payments. And relatively more safer way of investing, aside from, you know, in the stock market, you're gonna have a lot more riskier um, way of investing. And maybe those cash flows aren't as valuable as they once were in maybe 2021 and 2022. But is the main reason why you think that we're gonna have the bonds returning a little bit um, more than we did last year? because investors may look at bonds as a more favorable and attractive opportunity opposed to stock?
1: You've done your homework. And yes, so I'd say the answer is yes. I mean, if you think about it, so people talk about valuation. I hear people say the stock market must go down because it's expensive. I don't believe that's the case. It usually falls because of recessions. Um, Valuation is relative. When you walk into your financial advisor, um, they usually give you uh, different things that you can purchase based upon your longer term uh, uh you know asset allocation if you think about when the bond market yields one percent a 1.75 percent stocks are going to trade at a higher premium uh because they even though they're going to be lower returns uh, than probably historical averages uh, offer that margin of safety and so um so if you think about it if you walk to your advisor and, and they say, You know, what do you have for me to buy with my money? And they say, well, we have bonds. And they say, what are those yield? And you say, 2%. You're kind of like, I I don't know if I'm interested. Um, Then you say, "Um, what about stocks? And they may say, well, they, you know, typically they return around 10%, at least longer periods of time they have, uh, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, But the return now, they're a little bit expensive, but they're still going to offer 6%. That one versus six or two versus six may be enough for you to actually still buy equities, even though. Um, they're a little bit expensive relative to the historical norm. If you reprice the bond market, you have to reprice the stock market. When yields go to 5%, if that bond, if that stock market potential returns only 6%, you might not want to do that because of the extra risk you're laying on. And so that's what you had happen most of last year. And that's the reason why the market kind of hit the skids a bit last year, especially those more expensive parts where the cash flows are way out in the future. Um, Those are the areas that get hit the most. Uh, and so if you think about that, because the bond market did reprice, that's why the stock market pretty much fell uh, throughout much of 2022, largely to reprice or to fall down so that it actually, its forward-looking return was higher. And so I, I think you're spot on there. I'm not suggesting the stock market has to be negative, And there are lots of stock markets. We all talk about it as if it's one. But there are cheaper parts of the market. And those are the areas that we like. And so we still like the S&P 600, uh, which is uh, U.S. small cap stocks. Uh, they traded about 13 times their uh, forward earnings, 13 to 14 times. That's well below their historical norm. Uh, And so there are parts that we think you should overweight just a bit. Um, And it's not that I don't think stocks might not be able to eke out a small gain this year. I just think that we're going to still have more volatility because I think these inflation fears that are still kind of out there are going to move to recession fears uh, as you push throughout the year and as that Federal Reserve tightening really starts to hit the economy.
0: That makes perfect sense. And we were talking a little bit about interest rates. Right now, if we look at the current rate environment, are you guys doing anything differently to structure those fixed income portfolios that you're managing? And how are you managing things like duration as well?
1: Right, so we don't make huge duration bets. I will say, for the most of my time here, we've been shorter duration, and so uh, think of duration simply—it's a more complicated formula for your listeners. But think about your average maturity, and certainly as an investor, you want to make sure if you have a liability flow, you want to make sure that your assets match that. And so, if you need all your money in two or three years, you you want the duration of your bond portfolio to kind of match that in a way. So I'll, I'll start with that caveat. Uh, but in general, we've been a little bit shorter duration than the market because. Uh, the bond market because we, we didn't feel that there was you know, sufficient return opportunities when the 10-year Treasury yielded 50 basis points uh, in 2020. Um, that's kind of the backdrop that you had. Um, in October of this of last year, we did lengthen the duration of our bond portfolio to lock in some of those longer-term rates that were out there. And I think that was my main message, Devin, in that article. Um, I travel around the country. I talked to lots of investors. Um, lots of them with lots of money. And most people were wanting to invest in shorter term bonds, largely because they yielded more. And so I, I won't get these yields exactly right, but let's pretend the two-year treasury back then, and this is kind of pulling apart the bond market a little bit just into government debt. The two-year treasury back then maybe yielded 4.5 to 4.75%. The 10-year treasury was at four to four and a quarter. So many people were saying, Why wouldn't I just buy the one that that has the higher yield? And my comment was more Um, where do you think rates are going to be in two years from now? Because in two years from now, you're going to have to reinvest the entirety of that two-year treasure that you bought. And rates might be lower because the economic environment might be different. We might not be um, you know, back to to we may be back to a two percent ten year treasury. And so, if you can lock in for ten years, that coupon that you are purchasing, that was something that I wanted people to do because part of my job as head of retail wealth management is to keep investors from swinging so back and forth, but keeping them kind of more on a steadier path. We certainly make tilts, so we did tilt our portfolios towards longer duration. Um, but certainly, I, I want to keep that in the back of people's minds as they listen to this. Um, but that was the main reason why I had that message was because I thought. Uh, people were hiding out in the front end of the yield curve. I wanted them to to invest a little bit longer, just in case two years from now we wake up uh, and we're back to where the ten year Treasury yields two to three percent, which is certainly in the realm of of possibilities.
0: Right. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you say shorter duration, are you implying that means higher coupon and shorter maturity?
1: Uh, mainly shorter maturity. Back then, it actually yielded higher uh, coupons. But normally, the yield curve is upward sloping, and so normally, if if you're going to buy a ten year Treasury, Um, you're going to demand more yield because you have more interest rate risk. Um, Certainly in treasuries, you don't have a ton of credit risk because the US government typically pays its debts. Um, But typically the yield curve is upward sloping. So a two-year treasury or two-year corporate bond is going to yield less than a 10-year. In this instance, it was the opposite. And so the two-year treasury actually yielded more than the 10-year, which was driving people to buy that two-year more. Um, but I wanted people to think longer term and realize that in two years from now, you know, we could be back to an environment where the 10 year treasury no longer yields four and a quarter like you were able to buy it at. Maybe it yields 3%. And so you'd be awful happy if you have liabilities that are seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years out that you locked in that higher interest rate.
0: Got it. That makes perfect sense. Um, I want to shift gears to something that um, you've been a little bit vocal about, saying that here in the States, we're likely to experience a soft recession, which is a little bit different from the soft rhetoric or the um, soft landing rhetoric that we heard throughout last year, could you paint a picture of what a soft recession looks like? Does that differ from a soft landing or a um, is it the same thing? And what is the biggest catalyst that you think may spark that?
1: Yeah. So, so to me, I mean, if you think about where we're at right now, inflation's been too high in the Federal Reserve. Their whole goal has been to throttle that. And to throttle that, they've wanted to bring down economic growth. Now they certainly have a goal of getting a soft landing. They want the economy not to tip into a recession, which is when growth is negative. Um, but you know, to me, they're going to err on the side of doing too much because recession, or I'm sorry, inflation has been the boogeyman that kind of central banking, U.S. central banking idol, Paul Volcker put back in the box permanently back in the 1980s when he raised rates really high because inflation had been running for 15, 14 years, way too too much above, uh, and so. Um, you know, I just think they're going to err more on the side of, of actually doing too much rather than doing too little. And you heard commentary out this week talking about that. Um, look, if you look at most indicators out there right now, so for example, leading economic indicators, they're at levels before that. Um, they're at levels right now that before have always led to a recession. So if I go back to 1950, um, they've been at, they've never been at levels like they are today, and we haven't had a recession. Um, bank lending. So think about liquidity fl- flowing into the economy. Bank tightening lending standards that came out last week. Those are at levels right now um, that have always led to recessions in the past. Um, and so to me, if you think about the Federal Reserve and what they're looking to do, um, they're going to try to, you know, just get it down to around you know zero to one percent growth so that inflation comes down. Uh, but I don't, I don't think their their policy tools are that finely tuned. That they can actually do that perfectly. And I think they're still going to err on the side of doing too much because, you know, Chair Powell doesn't want to be the head of the Fed that allowed inflation to become more permanent. And so that's where I think you're going to get a recession. Um, I I think the Federal Reserve is really focused on the labor market. It's the one thing that is kind of at the end of every economic cycle, wages get too high, you run out of people to hire, uh, and then you have a recession, which kind of cleanses. Unfortunately, people lose their jobs, uh, and then we start all over with wages. Um, you know at lower levels until they rise to too high levels because um, the employees get the kind of advantage over the employers because there's not too many more people to hire and there's a bidding war that ensues um to me the federal reserve is going it wants to see the labor market kind of free up a bit and the only way that i think you get a soft landing is if people decide they want to come back into the labor market so just real quick to be counted as unemployed you actually have to be looking for a job if you're not looking for a job you're not counted as unemployed, you're just not in the labor market. And so there are fewer people today that are, at least as a percentage of the population, that are in the labor market looking for jobs. And so if some of those people came back in and decided they wanted to come back and provide labor, then theoretically we have more labor market supply and wages will will stay lower. Um, that's the only way that I think to get a soft landing. And I still think that's highly unlikely. The reason why I think it's soft um, is because we've already kind of had rolling recessions. And so the economy opened up kind of in an odd manner where everybody bought goods. Everything arrived via Amazon at your door. Um, Everybody bought Pelotons, like the one that's in my back room behind there. I bought two of them. I won't be buying those anymore. Um, And now people are moving towards services. And so you've already had like the the exercise bike industry probably feels like a recession. I imagine RVs, which people bought during uh, COVID, feels like a recession. The housing market last year had a recession. And so it's kind of been rolling as the economy has opened unevenly. Um, So you've let a lot of steam out of the economy already. Reason number two is the consumer is still in decent shape. Um, and so the consumer has spent the last you know, 10, 12 years rebuilding their balance sheet. So debt to assets at levels they were in the 1970s. I think that will you know, undoubtedly erode, but not so much to cause a great recession or a longer one. Uh, and last but not least, I take you back to where we started. The only reason we're where we are at today is because the Federal Reserve has been trying to get us there. I believe the Federal Reserve, and this is all the argument on Wall Street, they will pause once they see the labor market probably dip towards negative, um, meaning people lose their jobs. And given the reality that I don't think inflation, which is what the boogeyman has been, I don't believe it survives a recession. I believe it comes down. It's the final nail in the coffin. I believe they will be able to pivot um, towards uh, later in the year if they need to, to keep any recession from becoming deeper. And so that's why I kind of think it's gonna be more of a soft recession. And I think people have this belief, we're all kind of we um, have recency bias and we all think every recession looks like 07 to 09. Devin, there's been 24 recessions since the year 1900. Exactly two of them get called great. That recession and the great depression. The other 22 are not great. They're typically more mild. And I think this one will be even on the milder side just for the reasons I gave before.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And you made a good point about if workers are to come back into the labor market, that would probably have an increase in the unemployment rate or the employment rate. But if that were to happen, I heard a lot of rhetoric about a wage price spiral. If we do get more supply of workers, would that be something that complicates the Federal Reserve's inflation target? Or if we look at it at a more economic standpoint, if you have a higher supply of workers, would that have some type of an offsetting effect where maybe workers are more productive and you have lower prices, what do you think about that if workers are to come back into- if,
1: the- Yeah, per- perfect, if they come back, then so I'm kind of more of a supply side person, I believe that the total you know, speed rate of the economy is how many people work and how efficient they are. When, when you run out of people to work, um, you, you kind of uh, have constrained supply and if demand runs above that, you get inflation. And so if people come back into the labor market, holding that productivity aside, which I think there's good news there, I think productivity will rise. Um, but if people come back, that means there's more supply of workers which will be allow us to meet the demand that's out there, uh, and will keep wages lower. The end of every economic cycle, at least the last three, saw wages rise to over four percent, and then it died. I won't go into the reasons why, but if you're, you're bored on a, a Saturday night, take a look at, at the um, it's, it's Yushy why? I think that's the, uh, it's the supervisory and non uh, non uh, non kind of the non boss workers on a year over year basis. It gets about four percent before the end of every ec- economic cycle, going back to 1980. This is when the Federal Reserve started kind of thinking more about that. The wage price spiral of the 60s and 70s, pretty much you were on an elevator up on wages. You had recessions and wages didn't come down. They kept making new highs until they were up 9.4%, I believe, at its peak uh, in 1981. And if you think about people making more money um, and not being able to to actually have supplies keep up, uh, that's how you get inflation. And so the way that you would have a longer economic cycle than what I'm thinking about uh, and avoid this kind of recession that I'm thinking about is if some of those people who are on the sidelines now decide that you know COVID is kind of in the rearview mirror, they want to come back in and provide labor, that would allow us to fill jobs, keep wages lower, uh, and, and allow the cycle to be just a bit longer. I'm not for sure that's going to happen. I'd, I'd love it to happen. Um, but I, I think you're kind of um, at a point where even if we avoid a recession this year, I want people to kind of think about not having a longer economic cycle. This isn't 2010 when you're coming out of a big recession that kind of cleansed, uh, kind of you know pulled everything back to where you had lots of slack. It'll still be an economy that's later in an economic cycle. Um, fancy word for saying, you know closer to a recession than further away.
0: Got it. Got it. And our last point that we're going to touch on today is going to be the VIX, the volatility index. And I know our futures traders and option traders out there are probably rubbing their hands together when we talk about the VIX. But I want to know, because the VIX has somewhat been low, I mean, we are in a time of economic uncertainty. And when we are normally in times of economic uncertainty, you would expect maybe the VIX market should rise. You would see more volatility. You would see a sell-off. But do you think that the VIX is a reliable metric? Because I did some data research back earlier this week. And since the VIX was created in 1993, every recession that we have had has featured a VIX market that has reached a level of 40. Mm-hmm. In this market today, we've only reached 31, and that was back in October, I believe. But do you think the VIX is still a reliable metric? And if so, um, what do you think is causing the lack of volatility in markets?
1: Boy, those are really good questions. and I think you've done more research than I have on this. Um, you know, typically when the VIX is high, that's a buying opportunity. And so I could show you that chart. I mean, investor sentiment is completely opposite. And so when the VIX does get to higher levels, um, it's a pretty good buying opportunity. I remember tweeting uh, uh, during t- COVID. So if you, if you haven't signed up, I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn, I post all my different research each week. You can read my market outlook for every single week and kind of what I made of the prior week. Um, I remember tweeting, I can't remember what the VIX got to in COVID, but there was a period of time where if you looked historically, whatever level that was, 50, 60, whatever it might have been. Uh, you, if you had bought there and held for a year, you'd never lost money. doesn't mean it has to be, but that's how I kind of think of the VIX. VIX, one of the things we kind of look at, so we look at the economy, where are we at in the economic cycle? We look at monetary and fiscal policy. So I mentioned liquidity tightening earlier. That's typically what leads to recession. And so right now I think the Federal Reserve has a liquidity tourniquet on the U.S. economy. Uh, money supply, for example, um, you know, was growing 26.9% year over year between February of 2020 and February 2021 as we flooded the economy with money. Um, now it's at negative 1.3%. Um, this is the lowest it's ever been on a year-over-year basis. And so that's liquidity coming into the economy. Investor sentiment is a huge contrarian indicator. The VIX would fall into this. Uh, and then kind of market structure, where are people overweighted and underweighted? Um, the VIX, the level that we're at right now, it typically gets a lot lower during economic expansions. And so it's been elevated. If you look back historically, um, you know there are periods of time where it's in the 11s and 12s, and we're still in the 20s. It's been still elevated post-COVID, even as we've had a decent economy over the past couple years. And so I I know there are certainly reasons people have been buying options. You had the Reddit crowd that could cause some of these things to be distorted. Um, I I wouldn't place my outlook based upon the the VIX or any uh, in that manner. Um, I tend to think of it more in that sentiment indicator um, where um, you're kind of in a middle part right now, which if you do a a return diagram, which I have done, the middle part is kind of the area where you get uncertain results. So when it's kind of in the middle part of it, and I think the VIX average is 17 over a longer period of time. When it's below 17, you have a pretty high, um, you you have a pretty um, lower for return, but a higher certainty. Um, So lower volatility tends to be not such a bad thing. So you'll hear on the news a lot of times the VIX is too low. Um, This is where a person like me goes in and says, well, let me do the math behind it. I'm glad that you're curious and that you're doing that. That typically doesn't lead to bad outcomes. The bad outcomes are more in the middle. Um, where it's kind of in that middling area, that's where you don't have much of a certainty about what happens and you can't place much on it. And then when it gets really high, um, that's where you want to be buying. And so I, I guess right now I'd say we're kind of in the, I don't know, we're kind of in that middle area. And so maybe from, from my standpoint, it's kind of showing that we could tip in either way. Um, and I still think it's probably got to go higher before it goes lower, just because I think while inflation fears are coming down, although they did kind of elevate this well, time again, I think the moment you have a negative jobs number, um, I think we're gonna start hearing the word recession a lot more, and that will cause people to freak just a bit. but, but I will remind you again, short, um, mild and rolling. Um, and I remind everybody listening that the market bottoms before um, uh, recessions end. And so if it's a six month recession, um, and I could argue this is an odd period of time where you can almost argue that we may have already actually had a recession. We just won't know until later on. Um so I guess all in all, I don't know if I answered your question really well, but I, I think you're spot on. I, I guess to me, it's kind of one of those indicators that kind of is flashing warning signs right now.
0: Got it. Got it. And typically low volatility is evident in a strong market. And just looking at the year of 2023, strong would probably be an understatement Yes. In January, we had almost an 8% gain in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ had its best January in over 20 years. But if we're looking at the equity markets here in America, just with a 30,000-foot view, why do you think equities have started the year so strong?
1: Well, I, I, so I've done um, – this may be too old for many of you on the call. I don't know if you all listen to Dave Matthews' band, uh, but Dave Matthews wrote a song back in the day called The Space Between. Um, and so I kind of have thought we're in the space between. So if you, if you think about it, re, um, inflation fears drove 2022 trading. And so from January uh, 3rd, I believe we started falling of 2022 to October 12th, inflation fears were really rampant and the market hit a bottom on October 12th. October 13th, probably not so coincidentally, was the September CPI report, which for the first time really showed that a lot of what was happening in inflation was starting to falter. And a lot of it was tied to COVID like I was mentioning. And so we kind of thought it was the space between. You'd have these recession, uh, these inflation fears go lower, which would put a kind of a, a bottom underneath the market and possibly lead to better markets until you got to the point where you saw recession fears. And so that's kind of where we're in that space between right now. I think you're going to start seeing recession fears amp up, which I think will cause the market some consternation. I, I don't know that we make new lows. I don't think we do. And I, I actually don't think there's, uh, I think the market has discounted a lot of what's going, what, what's already happened or what is I see happening. But I think you're going to see probably a market that pulls back just a bit as those recession fears amp up, especially when you get a negative jobs report and people start running around, pulling their hair out, wondering how deep it's going to be, um, which I think it's still going to be shallow for all the reasons that I gave before. Um, And so that's kind of where we've been. That's why I think it's been better. Um, You know, I don't want anybody to go out and sell everything that they have um, because of that commentary, because I think a lot has been discounted. Um, And it kind of comes back to the last thing I'll say here. Um, There are many markets. Um, and so, you know, I, I, talked about hope streams, themes, and meme stocks that were bid up in 2021. Um, those are the, my, my key word for the things that were really expensive. That didn't make any sense. Um, we wanted to be more towards value and things that are cheaper in the markets. And that actually worked in 2022. And I think it works again in 2023. I think most of the strategists will go on TV and say, gosh, if the market was just cheaper or, um, I would actually be more optimistic. And that's where we have an answer for that. So keep in mind, I'm stewarding capital of people who should be longer term investors. We've just pushed towards the cheaper parts of the market that already have discounted some sort of an earnings recession uh, and discounted, um, you know, have a margin of safety against a downturn in that. Uh, and that's why we've been in small caps and even mid caps. Value stocks, I know that they're not popular. People want to buy tech stocks, but more value focused stocks, even sector neutral value as a factor. If you haven't done your homework on that, take a look at that. Uh, and then even international stocks, I think are a decent place to be in the coming year.
0: Mm. Well, we have a lot of markets to be looking at and observing, and I hope everybody out there is taking a lot of notes because this has been a value-packed episode. Now, before we let you go, Mr. Shute, I just have to ask, you have had a great career in the wealth management field, and you probably have a lot of advice that you would give out to our audience because we probably have somebody out there that one day sees himself in a position like yourself. But in your opinion, what do you think makes a great wealth manager? Not a good wealth manager, but a great wealth manager.
1: From the standpoint of wealth management and guiding people like I do, um, you know, I think being balanced and kind of, um, you know, not swinging too much in your emotions back and forth. You have to have a process. Um, and so, you know, I have emotions too. I wake up some mornings and I'm, I'm frustrated. It's Monday morning, and no one loves Monday mornings unless you have someone who's I don't know, different than me. Um, and, and so, you know, the market starts falling and you, you, go, ba- you go back to emotions, but then you kind of come back and I mentioned those four things that we look at. You kind of pull it back into that and you start looking at longer term. Uh, and we have an investment guy that kind of focuses more on these longer terms where I talk about when the bond and stock market is neg- negative, kind of how I opened up. You want to keep people centered and grounded and focus on the longer term prize. Um, and so I, I think that's something that, you know, I, I think does well. And when you think about wealth management and, and Devin, you and I talked about this a little bit, Um, you know, my whole life, in in the beginning part of my life, I I wanted to be thought of as smart. Um, And I think that's value for all you on this call, because certainly you're going to want to get ahead in your career. You want people to think that you're smart and you want to do all those things and um, be able to talk um, the kind of lingo on Wall Street or whatever it may be. But when I got to this role that I'm at right now, I I wanted to be more understandable. And so I I think there's value in, in having people who can take the difficult concepts that we just talked about and figure out how to put it in a way that um, your investors can consume. Um, I, I think a lot of my job is just pulling people back to what's you know more intermediate to longer term where these probabilities pay out much better uh, and have them focusing on that, even if there's going to be some volatility in between. Um, and so I, I think from a wealth management perspective uh, and dealing with individual investors. I think that's kind of what, if I've had some success, has allowed me to have that is just being able to be understood and being able to put these things into to ways that people can consume. Uh, we certainly make tilts, we make changes, we favor different parts of the market, um, but certainly we, we want to make sure that we keep them uh, steady and focused on the longer term prize, um, which is that financial security.
0: Yeah, that's what we all want, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And my last question for you: um, We do have some retail investors who are currently. Investing some money, maybe for the long term, or maybe they just want to maybe save for who knows a vacation. But given your time in the markets, what do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned? Oh boy! So I do
1: this for a living, and I consider myself to be um, somewhat educated. Um, you know, I, I will tell you, and I think of, I think I look at you, and I think of all the people your age on this call. Uh, max out your four hundred one k. And 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 um, I, this may surprise some of you. Um, Given the fact that I I tend to move things around, and certainly, um, you know, I I have opinions, I've traded currencies, I've done things. Uh, In my 401k, I've never owned a bond in my life. Um, And so that's not for everybody. I I tend to have a high risk tolerance, Um, but I always knew that was my retirement money. And if I I stuck with the odds, and so I think about probabilities as much as everything, um, you know, I thought it would pay off. And it's funny, I started doing this in 1995. Uh, And if you think about um, the 2007, 2008, 2009 time period, at least 2009, when the market fell as low as it did, if you looked at from my start to 2009, my career wasn't worth much from the standpoint of S&P 500 points or Dow points, it wasn't worth much at all 14 years. But I can assure you my 401k was because of compounding and just consistently adding to it. And so, you know, I would focus a lot on that and making sure that you kind of think about the longer term and odds, you know, kind of tying it back to my comment about not making this so scary. You know, I get on these calls with you know five, six hundred clients. We do a lot of client events. We do a lot of client podcasts, and I think they all come in with some like, "Oh my gosh, I got to decide if I'm all in or all out." And I've heard the 60/40 is dead. Um, Let me just kind of close with this on that question. Um, If I go back in time, a 60/40 portfolio, just the S and P 500, so U.S. large cap stocks, and those investment grade bonds we talked about, the Barclays Aggregate, 1976 to this year, you open up your statement every month and look back five years. Did you make or lose money? Um, From 1976 to today, so you start opening in 1981. um, I can't remember how many time periods it is. I think it's 400 some. Um, There were only three time periods in which a 60-40 investor would have opened up their period or their, their statement at month end and actually saw loss. Those three were the people who bought in uh january february march of 04 and held to the depths of the great recession in january february march of 09 and so when i talk about that it it doesn't mean it it might not happen again in the future but three out of 400 i think was the, the numbers there think about how if you kind of pull that back into that longer term picture think about kind of staying on that path and then making tweaks and tilts around that Uh, and and that's where I just think some of these things, when you pull them back, you want to take that longer term look and take a look at that because the odds are more with you. Again, doesn't mean it has to be, uh, but you get enough of these things and you put them together and you kind of can have an outlook, um, you know, kind of based upon how you should think about your money.
0: Got you there. So compound interest, that was my main takeaway. There you go. Yeah. I I said it was the eighth wonder of the world. So yeah, perfect. Yeah. And this has been a great Um, Recording, Mr. Shudi. How can the audience keep up to date with you or support what you have going on?
1: Sure. So, uh, uh, join me on LinkedIn. Um, So, I am on LinkedIn. I think that's the best way. I I, I do. Uh, We post all of our research. We put out, you know, investment guide pieces from time to time. I'll actually uh, tweet or do a LinkedIn on something that I see that's interesting in the economy. Um, That you can also go to nm.com and you'll see kind of our, our, our weekly commentaries, my quarterly commentary, our asset allocation focus, where we give more of a deeper dive. Uh, and then certainly, for whatever reason, I think they need filler on TV. Sometimes they put me on that. And you can, you know, catch up with that uh, from time to time. But I think those are the best ways to engage um, and to keep up with what we're thinking. And I, I believe more in continuous communication. And so, um, you know, every week we we write a, a I, I do a podcast for our advisors. That's typically, well, it's gotten longer lately. It's 30-35 minutes long, where I talk about how if their clients are calling, what would they think about? How does this fit into our story about where we're positioned? Uh, And that turns into a written document that goes out to a lot of our clients that I then post on LinkedIn on that Monday or Tuesday morning that you can engage with. Um, And you'll get a kind of a feel for how we think about the economy, how we think about markets and how those tie together.
0: Yeah. So if you guys are interested in following it up with Mr. Brent, please do that on nm.com or follow him on LinkedIn. This has been a great episode. And remember to subscribe and share with a friend. Thank you all for listening and have a great week.
1: Thanks, Devin.